there's something very attractive about simplicity that I think a lot of times we lose in our culture. Everyone's trying to outdo everyone else. We're trying to get the biggest and the best. And we're trying to get the most advanced and the most impressive. And sometimes the very thing we try to accomplish, we lose in our complexity, you know, because simplicity can be very attractive. I mean, I see this in technology. For instance, uh, I recently got a smartphone. And I thought I was a man on the move when I got my smartphone. I mean, it was much more than a cell phone and much more than my PDA. I now had everything in one. Like I tell you, my smartphone's turned me into a dumb man. That thing has caused me... I don't remember anything anymore. And if it's not working right, or if it doesn't sync right, or if I have a problem with the, if with some information being lost, I feel like I'm up a creek. You ever felt that way? I mean, technology has not caused me to be smarter. I think technology has made me dumber. I don't know that the complexity of the technology is always my best friend. Now, that's probably more on the user error. I realize all of our technology gurus out there, right, Vince, are saying to me, Todd, that's your issue. You're probably right about that. But I, I've noticed that I'm not near as attracted to this thing called a smartphone because it seems so complicated to use sometimes. You know, you know we do that sometimes in life, don't we? I mean, life wasn't meant to be hard. And yet sometimes we complicate things, don't we? And relationships get difficult. Occupations and situations and circumstances, and they all just become very hard for some reason. We do that in our relationship with God, too. And we do that in our worship of God. We sometimes take what was initially meant to be simple and thus very attractive, and in a human way we complicate it. We we make it hard, and I don't think it's on purpose, but the end result is we're left confused and, and thinking, man, is it really is it going to be this way forever? Micah addressed that very issue in Micah chapter 6. Will you turn there? He addressed the, the way that the two capital cities of Jerusalem and Samaria had complicated what was really meant to be simple worship. Their relationship with God was never meant to be difficult, complicated. But sure enough, the Israelites and their man-made laws and their human rituals and their desire to impress had brought complexity and it convoluted the entire relationship with the Lord. And Micah addresses what I refer to as the simple gift of simplicity in these last two chapters. Now, as you're finding finding Micah, by the way, it's the 33rd book of the Old Testament. It's six from the end. You should be able to locate it. Just go to the end and kind of go back a little bit. You'll locate it. It's a minor prophet. It's a Hebrew poem. You might want to call it a prophetic poem. And we've been looking at it for the whole month of December because it has a real good Christmas message. It teaches us what to value. To value humility. That's a small gift in man's eyes, but it's an incredibly significant gift to value uh, security. Not in men, right, or women, but in the real shepherd, Jesus Christ. And in these last two chapters, I think he shows us how to value simplicity. And so this three-part poem closes out this week in Micah 6 and 7. I just I really enjoyed these two chapters. I hope I can relate that to you as we teach through these two chapters about the simple gift 
of simplicity here. The small gift of simplicity. It begins in chapter 6, verse 1, with much the same imagery as in chapter 1. You recall chapter 1 was a courtroom, and the scene was one of, <clears throat> of the Lord bringing a witness against His people. Well, here we have again a courtroom scene. And Micah introduces the Lord. Look, what he, look how he introduces him. He says in Micah chapter 6, which by the way, in this chapter, Micah just clarifies what simplicity really is. He just cuts through the chase and he, he just kind of lays the cards on the table, so to speak, in a very plain and simple way about what God, really, what God is really after. Look what he does. He introduces God in Micah 6, verse 1, and he says about the Lord, he says that God's going to stand up and plead His case and the mountains and the hills that are going to hear what, what God's going to say, for He has the case against His people there in verse 2. Do you see that? The end of verse 2, He is lodging a charge against Israel. And what is that charge? Well, the Lord actually speaks for Himself now in verse 3. The Lord says, My people, what have I done to you? A rhetorical question. In other words, how have I burdened you? Answer me. And he's asking this question between the lines. Watch, guys. He's saying, how have I made life hard for you? How have I uh, complicated this thing called a relationship? How have I made relating to one another difficult? Now, the answer is you haven't, God. But he's wanting to kind of cut through some of the fog and say, listen, you seem like you find it very difficult and complicated. So have I done that? Look what he says now, just to make sure that they know that he hasn't done that. Look at how simple God has, has acted towards them and taken care of them. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak king of Moab counseled, what Balaam son of Yor answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. What he does is he kind of reviews in a very quick fashion how he brought them from nowhere to somewhere. He shows them it was all me and none of you that brought you from, from uh, being nobody to where you inherited the land of promise. I mean, that was all because of me, God says. Now, if you're on the end of the Israelites, if you're listening to God lodge this case, you realize, wow, we had nothing to do with that. That's a pretty simple road for us, isn't it? I mean, God, you're right. It shouldn't have been that hard. We didn't really do anything. And then he says, you know, he wants to know how he's made it hard for them or, or what they can bring in. And so they answer now in verse 6. As a response to all that God has done, what shall I come before the Lord with? And bow down before the exalted God. It's like they're on the witness stand. How are you going to answer the question? How are you going to answer the accusation? The charge laid against you? In light of all that God has done, what are you going to, how are you going to respond back to Him? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? By the way, that's the very first offering mentioned in Leviticus. It's the very first thing that was required ceremonially. So, should they do the very first thing? Bring a burnt offering? With calves a year old? Would the Lord be pleased with 10,000 rams? A reference, I believe, to Solomon when in 1 Kings chapter 3 he brought, and exactly what he brought, excuse me now, forgive me, but he brought a thousand of a certain item as an offering to God. I think Micah is referencing that and saying, hey, do you want to, do you want to spare no expense and impress God with a thousand things to offer? Or even 10,000 rivers of oil? I mean, let's be honest, guys, a pint of oil would be awesome. 
worth a lot of money. But imagine a river of that kind of oil. And then let's multiply that and make it 10,000 rivers. Surely that would get God's attention. Or maybe I'll offer the firstborn for my transgression. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He goes, he goes from just saying, you know what, I'll give things that I possess to where I'll give actually part of my body. Surely in all that pomp and circumstance, in all of that ritual, I can impress God. Is that what God wants as a response to all that He's done for me? The answer there is no, by the way. Now, now let me clarify some things here. Because the, Levitical, the, the, the Mosaic Law did ask for some of those things. Not the firstborn, obviously. That's against the Mosaic Law. And when he mentions that, he's almost saying that tongue-in-cheek, saying, listen, are you actually going to give you know, part of your own family? And by the way, King Ahaz did that. If you read the Old Testament, one of the kings that reigned during Micah's time gave one of his sons, quote, in the fire, end quote, from the Old Testament. I think it may be also a reference to Abraham, who was willing, remember him, on Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son. And of course, when God saw Abraham's faith, he said, no, no, that's not what I'm really after, Abraham. And he stopped Abraham from plunging the knife into Isaac's chest. Do you recall the situation? So, so here's the thing. When God sees all that we do in response to Him, is that really all that God wants? No. Because all of those acts, listen very carefully, First Family, all of those sacrificial acts, even though they may be obedient to the law in, in, a, in an action way on the outside, if they're from a heart of wickedness, a heart of untrue motives. If they have a corrupt motive behind them, He doesn't want them. In fact, I'll say it to you bluntly and very unchristmas like If your offerings to God come from motives that are untrue and corrupt and hypocritical, then they stink in the nostrils of God. In fact, you know the New Testament talks about our offerings and our sacrifices, and he speaks of our praises, in fact, from our lips, that they, they go up to God and God kind of does this. He takes a divine whiff. He goes, and when we offer God praises and sacrifices from hearts that are true, the Bible says those are a sweet-smelling savor to God. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, it's like when I walk in at 5, 5.30 and Julie's making barbecue. Man, I can smell it when the door opens. I'm like, honey, I can't wait for supper. I mean, just something, it's just a beautiful smell to my nostrils. You know what? That's how God reacts. He loves the smell, shall we say, of offerings from His children that have a pure heart behind them. But if our offerings and praises and sacrifices, if our actions are only from hearts, that are actually wicked and corruptive. We're just doing them because it's what we do. We're going through the motions. You know what God does? He probably goes like this. Pew-wee. You see, here's the point of Micah chapter 6. He simplifies and he clarifies. He says what God is after above everything, listen first family, is the true heart. In a culture that magnifies the externals, in a society where you've got to look right to even be anybody, right? Isn't that awesome and very comforting to know that what God looks at is tucked inside your chest cavity. It's called your heart. Amen, First Family? That's what God notices first. 
So Micah then begins to speak on behalf of Israel and almost on behalf of God. And he says, here's what is good, O man. Look at verse 8. Here's what the Lord requires to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He begins to bring things now back to the, to the sovereign uh, Jehovah, to God. And he says that when we're walking humbly with God, when, when being rightly related to God is the, the main thing we're after, a couple of things happen. One is, we act justly. That's an, an action on the outside, but that's something that we do. And then he says we love mercy. That's a compassion that we feel, by the way. Isn't it interesting that when we're rightly related to God, when we're humbly walking with the Lord, our actions and our emotions please Him. We aren't just just with the wrong kind of attitude. You've seen those kind of folks, right? Well, good night, that's wrong. Kick them, in. Kick them while they're down. And, and you couldn't find an ounce of mercy even if you tried. That's not what God wants. Then you find those who have all compassion and no justice. That's not what God's after. What's God's after? He's after the right blend of actions and emotions. He wants justice and compassion. And that comes from walking humbly with God. You know why? Listen, first time, because that's what God has done with us. God is the perfect blend. His character is the immaculate picture of justice and mercy. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Just go ahead and get holy and happy here, folks. Are you with me? See, His justice demanded that sin be paid for. So, we didn't skip out on the justice, but guess what? God in His compassion sent His Son to pay the price. Justice and mercy met in Jesus Christ. So when God asks you to live justly and yet mercifully, you can do it. Because if you're a believer, walking humbly with God, you have the Spirit of God in you. Amen? I love the way that in Christ we can be people of proper action and proper emotion. Not ruled by one or the other, but balanced between the both. That's what God wants. God wants a heart that's right. He wants the, the insides to be true. And then when those are right, and we bring to God our sacrifices, our offering, guess what? God smells them and He says... That's what I love to smell. Because He knows that what we're doing on the outside is from a heart that's true. Walking humbly with God. Now, i got to tell you something. When I read these verses, I, I think about my dog Riley. Riley reminds me of verses 6 and 7. You know, if you've never seen my dog, you know what I'm talking about. My dog is like all bark and not a bit of bite. And we have a little black fence in our back patio. And if he doesn't know you, even if he does know you, like Bob, he knows Bob, but he makes Bob think he's going to bite Bob's leg off every time Bob shows up. And he'll be at the fence, his legs are spread apart, and he's, he's barking. If you open the gate, he just kind of cows down, like, rrr, rrr, rrr. he's a little puppy dog, you know. Sometimes when we come home, he's all barking and excited. We have a fence in the back part of our yard, and they have some dogs on the other side of the fence at times, and... There's been a couple of times uh, he's gotten loose and he'll run and he'll catch those dogs. And you know what? Prior to actually getting to the dogs, he is like the meanest little terrier mutt you can ever meet. He's like all show. Kind of like 6 and 7 of Micah, chapter 6, or you know what I mean? He's loud, impressive, and you think, man, this guy's going to rip your leg off. And then he gets to the dogs and he stops. 
And it's like he, he just becomes this uh, cat. He's <laughs> like, what happened to my dog, you know? And this Riley, is, he's a great dog. But you know what? What really impresses me and our family, I mean, he's our dog. You know what we like about Riley? It's not when he's going all crazy and hyper and barking and acting on me. We just want Riley to be Riley. Just lay around and be friendly and welcome. I mean, he's just a great dog for that. But sometimes he feels the need to kind of impress other people, you know. We get that way too, don't we, sometimes? God's not looking for you to be something other than the true worshiper of the heart that He made you to be. You know where we violate this the most? is usually at church. We get all spiffed up like today. I got all dressed up for you guys today, you know, and Christmas colors. And we all, sometimes we come in here and we think, okay, I got to play the part and look the image. And sometimes we forget God sees way beyond what you drive and what you wear and where you live. Hallelujah. Amen. He sees through your heart. And no matter what you look like when you come in here, no matter what you say to others while you're in here, no matter how high you raise your hand or how loud you raise your voice, God sees through the outside to the heart. Question for you, First Family. Is God accepting your sacrifices this morning? Is God receiving your worship? Because what He requires is a true heart. And until that is right... Nothing on the outside is going to make any difference to God. He's not impressed by your bark. Often in our attempts to impress God, to go our own way, we make things complicated, don't we? Now, I think that's been the curse of Christendom since man got his hands on it. We have created our own systems and ideas and so religion has developed and suddenly we've got complicated religious systems and all they've done is led us astray for the most part. I think it happened in Israel's day. In fact, Micah 6, 9 through the end of the chapter is really a result. It's, it's the punishment that came Israel's way for the way they complicated what God originally meant to be simple. I'll not read all those verses, but I just want to remind you that when God intends for something to be simple, heartfelt and true worship from the inside, when we complicate that and make it more, when we make the outside matter more than the inside, there's a price to pay for that. God will not let us stray forever. He'll bring us back, and usually that's through an all-out, full-court press against our pride, amen? Our own systems of complexity that make us feel good about ourselves. God did this in Micah's day, and He brought Israel to her knees. He punished her for that type of pride and complexity. So He simplifies and He clarifies what it means to really worship the Lord and what God requires. He talks about that in chapter 6. And then we come to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we see that simplicity is personified. In other words, after he clarifies exactly what simplicity is, he then says, listen guys, God wants a heart that's true. And how do you get a heart that's true? It all starts with God. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Micah chapter 7. Look at verse 7, would you? Why don't you skip to Micah 7, 7. Look at this verse. Interesting verse. It's a contrasting verse because it begins with the word but. Do you see that there? Micah 7, 7. He says, But as for me, do you see that? I watch in hope for whom? 
The Lord. And look how many times he mentions these names of divinity here. He says, I wait for God, my Savior, my God will hear me. Suddenly Micah's attention is turned all towards the Lord. And this is in response to not only the punishment mentioned in Micah 6, but also the, the misery that Micah feels in, in chapter 7. He makes it very personal in that way. He says, you know, the day is coming when God will visit us. It will be a terrible day for those who don't believe. But Micah says in verse 7, but you know what? When things are just looking bad, when the landscape looks very distressing, I'm going to hope in God. Isn't that awesome? That he simplifies again. He says, listen, when everything seems impossible to solve, I'm going to hope in one person, God. Three letters. That's simple. There's not 16 steps to better health. There's not 45 steps out of debt. There's not six ways. I mean, all of man's ideas one day will all fail us. But God will never fail you, church. Let's hear that again. You ready? God will never fail you. And the day is coming when the Lord will be the rescuer of all humankind. And He will, quote-unquote, save the day. He starts talking about that in Micah 7, verse 8. In fact, you'll see that this last stanza, verses 8 through 20, this is Micah's concluding uh, song of praise about the hope of Israel. He mentions how the Lord will be His light. And though they've sinned and under the Lord's wrath, He'll bring them out into the light. Even though uh, neighboring nations may say, where is the Lord your God in verse 10? The day is going to come when people like Egypt and Assyria, they won't even matter. God will rescue you from those people. And He begins to talk about how God, the ultimate shepherd, will do His awesome work of deliverance. Now I want to say to you, uh, and make sure you catch this, I think this again, this chapter, these verses 8-20 through have both a historical Meaning, I do think he's speaking of the deliverance that Israel experienced from the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But I also think it's a double meaning, speaking of the a deliverance Israel one day will experience in the millennial reign. So there's historical and millennial implications. And as I said last week, prophets sometimes are hard to read because they kind of bounce back and forth. But in any case, who is it that at the very end simplifies and rescues? Look at verse 14 of Micah 7. It's God. He says, shepherd your people with your staff. In other words, cut through the complexity, God, and just be what people need. And He will do that. Verse 14 says that there will be coming a day when they will live by themselves in a forest in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders, God says. You see, folks, there's a day coming when all the complexity and all the, the difficulty that's associated with humankind will one day fade away and God will make everything not only right again, but listen very carefully, God will make everything simple again. He'll be in the center of the throne and mankind will worship Him. It says that all those nations will, at this point, see and they'll be ashamed of their power. Now, like verse 17, they'll lick dust like a snake. Isn't that interesting? I mean, who can hold a candle to God? Amen? They will come trembling out of their dens and they will turn in fear to the Lord our God. Who, and they will be afraid of you. And then verses 18 through 20 are actually, I believe, they're Micah's signature on this entire book. 
In fact, verse 18 is, is actually the very first line there where it says, Who is a God like you? It's actually Micah's, part of Micah's name in the very first phrase of this verse. You ever seen a picture or a painting and the artist will sign the corner of it? Or perhaps some artists actually embed their signature within the painting and you've got to try to hunt to find it, you know? That's what Micah does here. It's kind of like his personal stamp saying, you know what, I have written this book and there is nobody like God. Because the name Micah means, who is like the Lord? So instead of just saying that simple phrase, he actually kind of puts a variation on it. And he says in verse 18, look what it says, who is a God like you? Isn't that awesome? When all said and done, and the complexities of man are, are on the horizon and things seem impossible to solve, guess what? Guess who comes to the rescue? God. And He does. Listen, church, what only God can do. Look at the rest of the verse. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives? Oh, this is some good scripture, folks. He forgives the transgression of the remnant of His inheritance. Micah says about this God of which there is no one like. Look what he says. You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. And you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. That's an important word, by the way. It's a word of finality. Tread is stronger than just stomp. It's stronger than step on. Tread means to put out once and for all. It goes in line with the next verse, part of the verse when it says, You will hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. In other words, in the end, God will once and for all, He'll take care of everything. God will simplify. He'll take care of it. He has taken care of our sins. He will he's cast them as far as the uh, east is from the west. Look at verse 20. You will be true to Jacob. Show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on earth on oath to our fathers in days long ago. These last three verses are Micah's concluding song of praise. As he lifts up God above all the fray, above all the complexity, Micah lifts up Jehovah, God Almighty. And he says, people, that's where you start. And that's where you end. It's all about God. Remember how you, what does God require? That you walk humbly with your God. You see, what Micah's doing here is this. He's simply simplifying everything. He's saying, guys, don't make it hard. It wasn't meant to be complicated. Start with God, stay with God, and end with God. If you'll do that, life won't seem near as difficult. Now listen very carefully. Listen very carefully. Throughout decades and centuries, mankind has been trying to do the exact opposite. They've been trying to get people to not start with God, not stay with God, and not continue with God, and not end with God. They want to try to remove God, so they make the issues hard and complicated. They really create messages and systems that pull us away from God. They take away the, the, the small gift of simplicity that God originally designed, which is simply to, to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, mind, and strength. Now listen very carefully. The most important question you have to answer is this. Am I rightly related to God? That's the most important question every single person in this room needs to answer today. Am I rightly related to God? Not your wife or your husband. That's not a bad question, but it's not the most important question. Not to your employer, not to the person beside you or your children, 
Not how many times you go to church this past year. Not how much money you give in the offering plate. None of those questions are near as important. Listen very carefully. As, am I rightly related to God? Are you with me? That's what Micah was doing here. He's saying, guys, you're all worried about your impressive rituals and your worship styles. You're trying to really be caught up in, in what you can give and what you can bring. But I want to ask you one question. What does God really require? And God requires a heart that's true, that's rightly related to Him. Is God getting that from you? Is God getting a heart rightly related to Him? Now listen very carefully. Here's how that happens. Our heart becomes rightly related to God. Our insides, shall we say, become right with God through Jesus Christ. Period. Let me say that again. Okay, Everybody listen very carefully. Our heart becomes rightly related to God through Jesus Christ. Period. Say, well, Todd, I thought I I had to really do a lot of good things. I had to be good enough. Or I thought I had to get baptized when I was, you know, a week old or get confirmed at 13. I thought I had to... Wait, 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 wait. That's just like man-made religion to make it complicated. Hello, church. Are you listening to me? That's just like humans to make what God said was very simple, very difficult. If I'm speaking to you this morning, and you're finding yourself, you know, kind of like, well, I'm not sure I'm ready for this. If you're thinking, I'm going to be reeling from, this guy's kind of challenging what I heard for all my life, or just, just relax. Let me explain to you something. The Bible has been very clear from cover to cover that the only way to be right with God is through His Son, Jesus. In fact, nowhere in the Bible are we ever told that something we do or give or act like ever makes us acceptable to God. Nowhere in the Bible is that ever said. What is consistent throughout Scripture is that God accepts people based on the work of Jesus Christ. It's not about how good or bad you've been. It's about how perfect Jesus is. And so, because He's the only bridge to heaven from earth. You see, He was God, amen? He was with God at the beginning, the Bible says. But at Christmas, as we say, He came to earth as a what? As a man. He was fully God, but now He's fully man. It's called the Incarnation. He's known as deity. For 33 years, He lived among us as a man, but He was God. Guess what? Because He lived a holy life and gave that life as a sacrifice, He died on the cross. Because He did that, He's the only one in the universe for all of time that qualifies to get you from earth to heaven. He's the only one. It's that simple. It's not hard. It's not complicated. But a thousand religions would love to make you think it is. And let's just consider it my goal this morning to uncomplicate all the erroneous messages you may have heard all your life. Jesus Christ is the only way out of the complex mess you're in. You see, because He was God and was man, He can get you from earth to heaven. And it's done when we believe in Jesus Christ. It's kind of like... And I use this analogy very loosely. So any fellow theologians, just be nice to me when we're done here today. It's like he's the engineer of the train. If you're going to go to heaven on that train, you'd better get on the one that he's captaining. Because all the others may be nice trains on the outside, and they may have a nice long track, but they don't go anywhere. Only one train goes to heaven. It's the one led by Jesus. Because he's the only one that gets in. He's holy. He's God. He used to live there. 
So you're going to go there, get on His train, you're with me. And that's done when we say, Jesus, I believe You are from God, that You are God. I believe You died as God to pay for my sin. So I now accept and embrace the Gospel, which is the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus as the only way my sins can be forgiven. Jesus, I believe You're the only way. That simple prayer puts you on the right train to heaven. It's that simple. So, well, Todd, I, I, I committed a terrible sin when I was 16. You're right. And so did everybody else in here you're sitting next to. Well, Todd, I, I did this, or I didn't do that, or my priest said this, or another pastor said this, or I heard that. Wait, wait, just, just for a moment... Come at it with fresh glasses and let the Word of God simplify. Let Micah show us what's required to be rightly related with God. Now, I've got to tell you that this message that Micah speaks about, that just being making sure God is where we start and we finish, is a consistent theme in Scripture. Let me show you some verses that just highlight this. So make sure you don't miss making this up. Here's Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through whom? Jesus Christ our Lord. Not through your works. Not through your church attendance or your offerings. You get eternal life through one person. Jesus Christ. Period. Plain and simple. Look at the next verse here. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. It is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And then I love this next little insert. Paul adds, he says, and even this faith is not from yourselves. Isn't that awesome? When you chose to respond to God, it's not because you dug out some human endeavor or some human effort and said, God, I can sense you're moving me with your grace and I'm going to bless you by saying yes to your grace. Baloney. Man, you were dead. I was dead. And God in His sovereignty chose to raise us up and when He moved upon our hearts with His grace, even that faith you had to believe in that, He gave you that to begin with. Everything's about God's work in your life. Are you with me? And you know why? So that no one can ever boast. In fact, the Bible clearly says that salvation is not by works. I've often wondered how anyone could, could not see this. It says, not by works. You are not made right with God. You don't impress the Father. You don't make God more uh, accepting of you by what you do. Because it's not about you. It's about His Son, Jesus Christ. Are you with me, guys? It's really quite simple. Look at this verse here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Probably my most favorite verse about the gospel itself is this one right here. He says, I remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. That means something very simple and very important. Listen very carefully. The gospel is contact sensitive. I've heard folks say, I've always been a Christian. No, that's, that's theologically impossible. You cannot just always be a Christian because the Bible here says that at some point you must receive the gospel, news about Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And when you receive that, you make a choice to take your stand on it. You see those words there? When that happens, what does the Bible say? By this gospel, you are what? That's all. So, when I was 14 years old, I heard the message that Christ died for me. I chose to embrace Him as God's Son and His death, burial, and resurrection as God's way. And I took my stand and embraced that as the only way to heaven. At that moment, God's grace and faith were activated through God's sovereignty. He saved me. Period. Have you in your life 
experience the sovereign grace of God by simply believing in Jesus Christ as the only way to be made right with God. But, but I thought I had to do this. I thought I had to give that. I had to go there. I thought, I thought, wait, wait, wait. Forget what you thought. Excuse me. What does God say? What is really required of, the, of God? To believe in the only begotten Son of God. That's required. And when that happens, God sees us as His children. So the question this morning is this. Have you believed in Jesus? Now, isn't that an awesomely simple question? I didn't ask if you're a member of the church and paid your dues. I didn't ask, you know, if how many good things you did or how many bad things you might have done. I just want to know one thing. Have you believed in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross? If you believed that is your only way to heaven, the minute you embrace that, God saves you. It's really that simple, First Family. You see, that's really the point of Micah 7.18. Because nobody can do that but God. Look what it says again. Who is God like you who pardons sin and forgives? Guess what? Only God can do that. No man can ever pardon and forgive you and, and get you into heaven. It's impossible for any man to do that. Only God through Jesus can. So if you're looking to be right with God, guess what? Start by looking at Jesus. That's where it starts. Take a trip to the cross. In fact, why don't we review here real quickly as we close. These simple gifts we talked about during this month of December. Remember the very first two chapters of Micah? We talked about the gift of humility. It's taking the escalator down. Remember that? The courage to to take the low road, we said, in a good way. The next week we saw in Micah 3 through 5 was about security. Security is taking a look up, remember? It's not looking at men because no man will ever meet your needs. No woman's going to meet your need. We're just what? At best, we're men and women. We've got to get our eyes off the horizontal and to the vertical. So security comes from taking a look up. If humility and security are taking an escalator down and taking a look up, guess what simplicity is? Simplicity is taking a trip to the cross. You know why? Because at the cross, everything is done. There's nothing for you to do. Let me say that again to you, church. And everyone just smile and relax and be thankful. At the cross, everything is done. Don't you love the simplicity of those words? And a lot of the complexity and the difficulty that we experience, the stress that we find in religion is, there's always more to do. I've got to say this and give this and go here and do that. I hope I make it. Yeah, that's the problem. You're leaving off two letters. You're leaving off the N and the E. At the cross, Jesus paid it all. It's done. Just believe. Repent and believe. In the name of Jesus Christ. And let the Father do what only the Father can do. Pardon and forgive. Hallelujah, church. Amen. Sometimes we're looking for people to do what only the Father can do. What only Dad can do. And it's just like God to make things simple. And clarify the issue. And personalize it in Jesus. And then say to us as children, Hey, I've taken care of everything. Now, just believe and trust me.
I got it. I got you covered. What an awesome God. Who is a God like Him? Amen? There is no one like Jehovah. I was thinking about this message and just the simplicity that Micah really highlights in these last two chapters. And my mind went back to probably what's my, what was my most simplest Christmas. Most simplest. not even true to say that. was my simplest Christmas ever. It was when I was probably, I don't know what grade exactly, but 8, 9, 10th grade in there. But just a few days shy of Christmas, someone broke into our home and stole all of our presents. Now, I'd love to say to you that as a ninth grade boy, let's say, whatever, I forget, I was in that age range. I'd love to say to you that I went in and we saw that happening and we called my dad and he came home and we called the cops and there were mattresses turned over and dressers undone. And I'd love to say to you that I was not worried about Christmas at all. I'm just glad my family was safe. But i got to tell you, in the mind of this selfish, little, greedy, red-headed boy that was in ninth grade, I was thinking, are we getting the presents back? <laughs> I was thinking that, okay? What happened to the presents? Are they insured? Hey, Dad, you know, did you use your visa so we can make sure that if they get broke, replace them? What's going on with the presents? I was just like you, so relax, okay? Well, we, we dealt with all the stuff about the break-in, and they did the fingerprinting, and we got things back in order, and... I can recall, you know, I never voiced that, but I can recall the next day or two, like, man, what's going to happen with Christmas? And I remember one day, I'm not sure it was after Christmas or before, I don't even know now, I can't remember, but I know this. I remember my dad saying, hey guys, let's hop in the car, we're going to go have Christmas. I'm like, whoa, we're going to have Christmas in the car? <laughs> I need an idea, Dad, i got to hand it to you, you know. And we get in the car, we drive, and he just goes to the stores. And he says, we had gotten you this, so there you go. And he just picked it up, put it in the buggy, and bought it. And he said, that's for you, Todd. And we'd go to the next door and say, this is for you, Sydney. I had two sisters and this is what we got you. And it was like, okay, there's no ambiance, there's no atmosphere, but you know what? This is pretty simple. You know why? Because my dad took care of everything. Guess what? Your life will simplify if you'll let your father take care of everything. Are you with me? A lot of us are stressing and working and religioning to impress our Father. He doesn't even need that. He doesn't even want that. He'll take care of you. He already has taken care of you. All He wants you to do is trust Him. Believe. And let the Father do what only God can. Save. Are you with me? Enjoy a simple Christmas this year. Let the Father do what only He can do. Save.